Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text contains legislation about how the Israelites were to offer a red heifer. Contrary to all the other sacrifices Israel presented to the Lord, this red heifer was not sacrificed at the altar, at the tabernacle. It was to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered there. With most sacrifices, the priests sacrificed the animals. But with the red heifer, others were involved. With most sacrifices, the animal's blood was drained from it, and it was sprinkled or poured out at the base of the altar. Yet with a red heifer, most of the blood was burned as part of a burnt offering. While most sacrifices helped to make people clean, those involved in, the, in offering the red heifer were made unclean. Our text details how the important thing about offering a red heifer was the collection of the ashes. They were gathered and kept in a clean place outside the camp. Whenever someone became unclean through contact with the dead, some of the ashes of this burnt offering were mixed with water and sprinkled on him to cleanse him. This cleansing was critically important for someone who was unclean through contact with the dead was able to spread his impurity to anyone and anything he touched. His uncleanness had potential to defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Someone who refused cleansing was cut off from God's people. To modern people living in our day and age, these regulations look like mumbo-jumbo. We tend to view them as ancient traditions far removed from our daily lives. If people who study human societies and their cultures have discovered that ancient traditions were not just magic shows, they reveal the deepest truths about life as a society sees it. We need to remember that the practice of offering a red heifer was not just a human tradition. It was a practice commanded by the Lord to his people Israel. This morning we'll focus on why the Lord commanded the offering of a red heifer, what it signified, and how this relates to our lives today. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. The Lord provides his people Israel with a red heifer to cleanse them from their uncleanness. We'll consider our need for cleaning, God's provision for our cleaning, and how we can live purified lives. Israelite society could be divided into three groups, the priests, the Levites, and the common people. In Numbers 18, we dealt with the ministry of the priests and Levites about their labors at the tabernacle on behalf of the people of Israel. The priests and Levites served as mediators between the people and God. They presented Israel's sacrifices and offerings to atone for their sins. It was their ministry at the tabernacle that opened the way for God's people to approach him and to live in close fellowship with him. Yet our text tells us about how it was still possible 
for the people to defile the tabernacle. They could do so through their uncleanness. The words unclean and uncleanness are used 17 times in Numbers 19. Being unclean is the major issue addressed in our text. Behind that stress and uncleanness lies the idea that God is holy and that he requires cleanness or purity from us. One of the themes running through the book of Leviticus is the Lord's command. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What is not holy is pictured in the Bible as being unclean. The concept of something being dirty or unclean is not foreign to us. Anyone responsible for washing dishes or clothes or floors or toilets knows how hard it is to keep things clean. Pots and pans often require scrubbing to get food baked on them off again. Certain stains in clothing are almost impossible to get out. Keeping a house clean often feels like an exercise in futility. It doesn't take long for kids to mess things up again. Yet when the Bible speaks about uncleanness, it refers to more than just physical dirt. It refers to our spiritual, to our moral pollution. In our culture, we're not unfamiliar with this. Sometimes you hear that a certain politician or businessman is dirty. It's not a reference to him smelling or wearing dirty clothes. The point is that such a person is known to cheat or steal or take bribes. He doesn't deal honestly with those around him. Thus, when the Bible speaks about us being unclean, it's talking about how we are polluted by sin. Our text focuses on the uncleanness that comes from touching a dead body. In our society, we're quite isolated from death. How many of you have actually seen a dead body? How many of you have touched one? When loved ones get sick, they're often taken to a hospital. If they're in palliative care, they may be cared for in a hospice. When loved ones die, a funeral home picks up the body, and a mortician prepares it for burial. We're not regularly required to handle dead people. But in ancient days, that was very different. Most people died at home, or if their death was unexpected, perhaps at work or traveling. It was a responsibility of the family to prepare the body for burial. You had to touch a dead person to wrap them up and carry them out of the tent. And so it was impossible for the average Israelite to avoid contact with death. We need to remember that the Lord gave the instruction about the red heifer in Numbers 19, while his people were wandering in the desert. God had pronounced death on all those 20 years old and older because of their unwillingness to go in and take possession of Canaan. The number of the Israelites was likely greater than that of the population of Winnipeg. 
just as we have many people die in our city each day. So death would have been a daily reality in the Israelite camp. Thus God's people had to deal with death and the uncleanness it brought on a regular basis. Our text takes place after the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the subsequent grumbling of the people. Between fire from heaven, an earthquake that swallowed up the rebels, and a subsequent plague on the people, about 15,000 of them had died. These events brought home to the Israelites the holiness of their God. Numbers 17 ended with their cry. Behold, we perish, we are undone, we're all undone. In their anguish, the people cry out, Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? The people recognize there is a close link between sin and uncleanness and death. This link became evident already in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember God's command about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? He told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God wasn't just talking about physical death. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin. Our God is a God of life and light. Death is a symbol of sin and darkness. Previously, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect communion with God. But when they ate of the forbidden tree, they brought sin and death into the world. Their sin cut them off from God. And death is a sign of how this communion was broken. The link between sin and uncleanness and death did not just exist in the Old Covenant. It's there today as well. Consider how Paul describes our fallen state in the first verses of Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul describes what such a life looks like. He speaks of living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. The consequence of such a life is that we were, by nature, children of wrath. What that means is that we're deserving of the consequence of our sins, coming under God's wrath, suffering death, separation from God. In our text, the ultimate symbol of sin is identified as death. God tells his people that any contact with the realm of the dead made them unclean. Anyone who was unclean could not come into the presence of God. They needed to follow God's regulations and to undergo a purifying ritual that involved a red heifer. This ritual had a specific purpose. It was designed to impress on God's people the defiling power of sin, which contaminates us, which makes us unfit for coming into God's presence. And so our text impresses on us the need for cleansing. The fall into sin has affected our thinking. It's affected our character. It's influenced our will. 
Our minds have been corrupted, our hearts made impure, our desires set contrary to the will of God. By nature, beloved, we are totally corrupt and inclined to all evil. One of the greatest tragedies of all is that we've become ignorant of this truth about ourselves. We pride ourselves in our wisdom, our goodness, our freedom. We're lost and we don't even realize it. We are pervasively contaminated people on every level of our being. In and of ourselves, we cannot come near to God. We need to be made clean before we can draw near to Him. Brings us to our second point, and it will consider God's provision for our cleansing. When we want to clean something dirty, we often use a cleansing agent. It might be dish detergent or laundry detergent or some floor cleaning solution. For hard to clean dishes, we might use Vim. For stains in our clothing, we might use a special spray. We combine these cleaning agents with water to wash our dishes or clothes or toilets or floors. In our text, the Lord prescribes a special cleansing agent to wash away the contamination of sin and death. The people were commanded to bring a red heifer without defect and in which there was no blemish and on which no yoke had come. A heifer is a female cow that has not yet given birth to any young. Without defect or blemish meant that the animal had to be in tip-top condition. Israel was taught that God only wanted the best from them. They were not allowed to pawn off blind or lame animals on him. The rule about this cow having never worn a yoke indicates that this animal had never been used to plow a field or tread grain. It was required to be an unspoiled animal in the prime of life. What's significant about this heifer is that it had to be red. In other kinds of sacrifices, God never spells out the color of the animal. But here he does. Red is the color of blood. The Bible makes clear that man's life is in the blood. That's why God forbade the shedding of another person's blood. Israel was also commanded not to eat any blood. The reason is given in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Normally, when an animal was sacrificed before the Lord, it was drained of its blood. The blood was then smeared on the horns of the altar or sprinkled over whatever or whoever needed to be cleansed. The remaining blood was poured out at the base of the altar. Symbolically, the blood of the sacrifice was offered to God as payment for the sins of his people. But that's different with the red heifer used in cleansing people from contamination because of death. This heifer was to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before Eliezer the priest. It's true that a small part of this animal's blood was taken by the priest and sprinkled toward the front of the tent of meeting. 
Yet the heifer to be sacrificed in this purification ceremony had to be red, because red symbolized the color of blood. Unlike any other sacrifice, it's blood, and every part of it were all to be burned up as an offering to God. The law prescribed that together with the red heifer, several other things needed to be burnt up with this offering. Cedar wood, which, had a red, which has a reddish color, and scarlet thread, also colored red, were added to the offering. So was hyssop, an herb traditionally used to spread the cleansing blood on objects and people. The point should be clear. This entire sacrifice of the red heifer and all that accompanied it was intended to serve as a payment for sin. It was intended to purify us red-blooded creatures from the stain of sin and death. After the sacrificial red heifer and the other ingredients of this offering had been burned completely, the ashes were gathered up. They were stored in a ceremonially clean place until they were required. When someone touched a dead body, these ashes could be mixed with clean water and sprinkled on the unclean person. Or they could be sprinkled on a defiled tent and the contents of it. The ashes served as a convenient instant purification offering. Just like we can add hot water to instant coffee or to a cup of soup package. So the Israelites were able to add water to these ashes of the red heifer. Being cleansed from contact with the dead did not require a separate or expensive offering. The Lord makes it easier for his people to be cleansed by being sprinkled with this ash water. Yet the sprinkling was not an instantaneous cure. It was not some magical ritual that removed the need for the normal cleansing process, as if contamination could simply be removed with a sprinkling of fairy dust. The water and ashes needed to be applied twice, on the third and seventh day after defilement. The defiled person also needed to wash himself and his clothes. Only then would the purification process be complete. It shows purification from the uncleanness of sin is a process that takes time. While the cost of cleansing was low for the person being cleansed, it was much higher for those involved in providing this cleansing. One of the striking things about the red heifer offering was that it defiled all those who prepared and administered it. The priest who oversaw the ritual became unclean. The man who burned the red heifer became unclean. The person who collected the ashes became unclean. The person who sprinkled the mixture of ashes and water on the unclean person also became unclean. They had to wash their clothes and bathe in water, and they remained unclean till evening. Even the ashes themselves had to be stored outside the camp so that they would not make the camp unclean. In different ways, the red heifer offering points us to Jesus Christ. 
The book of Hebrews makes clear that the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law all point to him. In chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Just as the red heifer had to be without blemish or defect, So Jesus was a perfect human being who offered himself to God as a pure sacrifice. Just as the blood of the red heifer was required to atone for the sin and uncleanness of God's people Israel, so Christ's blood was shed to cleanse us. Just as the preparation of the ashes for sprinkling was a costly business, that made all involved in offering this sacrifice and sprinkling the ashes unclean. So Christ's sacrifice was so costly, it required his crucifixion and death. Think about that for a moment, beloved. Our God is a God of life and light. Death is a symbol of sin and darkness. Yet Christ had to partake of sin and death in order to redeem us and purify us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had to die to give us new life. He had to enter into the realm of the dead, the ultimate symbol of uncleanness, in order to purify us. Thus we see that in Jesus Christ, God has made provision to purify us from our sin and uncleanness. Brings us to our final point, and it will see how we can live purified lives. There's one element in our text that we've not yet dealt with. It's the fact that sin's uncleanness is contagious. It spreads so easily. If someone died in a tent, anyone who entered that tent became unclean. And any uncovered vessel in it was considered unclean for seven days. But that's not all. Our text ends with a stipulation that whatever an unclean person touched was unclean. And that anyone who touched it was unclean until evening. If you were unclean and you sat in a chair and anyone else touched it or sat in it, that person became unclean till evening. If you used a plate or cutlery and someone else touched them, he or she became unclean till evening. Being unclean was contagious. It spread to everything and everyone you touched. It pictures for us how easily sin spreads. The the sinful things we say and do impact others, and they often cause them to sin. Just think of what happens when you get impatient with a family member or get into an argument with others around you. The result is often frustration, anger, and conflict. 
Think about what happens when you're a bad influence on others through a sinful way of life. The Bible warns, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. As yeast spreads through a whole lump of dough, so your sin will spread to others if you're not admonished or cut off from them. Dealing with sin and its resulting uncleanness requires radical action. We need to be washed clean with the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Through his blood offered for us on the cross, Christ promises, us to, promises to cleanse us from the guilt of our sins. To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. The result is that we are justified, considered not guilty, and thus share in everlasting life. But beloved, that's only half of the equation. We don't just need to be cleansed of the guilt of our sins. We also need to be cleansed of the impurity of our souls. The sprinkling of those defiled by touching a dead body involved ashes mixed with clear or living water. In John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus cried out to the crowds, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Then he said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John explains that Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus were to receive. It is the Holy Spirit who cleanses us from the impurity of our souls. He cleanses us of the pollution caused by our sinful nature. Paul describes how Christ washes us through his Spirit in Titus 3. He writes about how God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul uses two phrases to describe the Spirit's work. He speaks about the washing of regeneration. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 makes clear what this is all about. The Lord promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Thus the washing by the spirit describes a moral and spiritual cleansing. Here is the basis for a changed life. Paul goes on to speak about how we need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit has caused us to be born again, He transforms our life from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The direction of our life then changes. We put off the old nature and put on the new. 
We turn away from being self-focused, pleasure-seeking people who continually walk in the ways of sin. Through the renewing power of the Spirit, we learn to live our lives to the glory of God, seeking to do His will. This does not mean that we will be perfect in this life. We've not yet arrived in heaven. But it does mean that we have the resources to fight against sin. Through His Spirit, God equips us that more and more we put to death the sinful desires of the flesh. Out of thankfulness for Christ's redeeming work, the Spirit makes us willing and eager to live our lives according to God's holy commands. And so we see, beloved, that God's legislation about the red heifer sacrifice was good news for his people. God opened the way for them to be cleansed from their uncleanness. Through the sprinkling of the ashes and water, they were cleansed. The result was that they were able to enjoy communion with God. God does the same for us. He washes us with Christ's blood and spirit. Through the blood of Christ, our guilt is taken away. Through Christ's spirit, we're cleansed of the impurity of our souls. The result is that we have been restored in our relationship with the Lord. God draws us into communion with him. He makes us willing and able to live for him. Beloved, do you feel clean in the Lord's presence today? Perhaps there is some big sin in your past for which you are not sure God has forgiven you. 1 John 1 verse 9 assures us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps there are sins that cling to us despite our best efforts to dislodge them from our lives. Romans 13, 14 encourages us, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Beloved, we must never tire of bringing our sins to God. We have his promise that he will never get tired of washing them away. In this fallen world, just as we continually need to wash our dishes and clothes and toilets and floors, so we will continue to have to come to Christ for washing. There is no magic cure that will keep us from further defilement. Praise God for, the clean, for cleansing us through the blood and spirit of Christ. Praise God that our sins are presently covered and will ultimately be completely removed. Praise God that one day we'll be totally cleansed, that we'll be able to live with him eternally. Amen.